Hey, everyone. Before we get into today's interview, just wanted to drop a little reminder to stay up to date with all the latest episodes of On The Margin. You can subscribe to the BlockWorks Macro YouTube. Just go up there, just click the little uh, subscribe button, or you can click the links at the top of this episode. It'll take you over to Apple, Spotify, whatever your preferred platform is. Just subscribe there. If you could, leave a rating and review. Really appreciate it. All right, on with the show. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of On The Margin. Uh, This is a special one. This is a special one because uh, as I was telling my guests, uh, I'm going to knock on wood 100 times during this episode, but we are recording here on what is most likely the day that a Bitcoin ETF goes live. I'm actually joined by a co-host on today's program, Ben Strack, uh, who leads ETF coverage on our editorial team, and James Seyfert of Bloomberg and uh, Matt Hogan of Bitwise. Guys, welcome to the program. Thanks for having us. Yeah, Yeah, happy happy to be here. This is a fun day for me. (laughs) Hopefully. this is... Kind of the Super Bowl, right? (laughs) I would imagine for you, James. (laughs) Yeah, no, it really is. I mean, this is Matt. Matt's been in this war a little more aggressively and actually in the trenches, whereas I've just been kind of predicting what will happen from the sidelines. But we, we were, I was uh, predicting what will happen from the sidelines long before uh, anyone else. So we were kind of in a camp all our own, saying what we think it can happen, and the consensus has kind of shifted to us. But Matt obviously has been here since he left the ETF industry and, and went to a provider that's going to ultimately try to launch this however many years ago. So he's probably the more important person to talk to here than anyone. No, you've been you've been in the trenches, James, for sure. <laughs> but yes, I was seven years old when we first filed for a spot Bitcoin ETF. So I've been, I've been working at it for a while. It's amazing that we've gotten this far. You know, we've all knocked on wood now. So we got it covered. Uh, hopefully we'll get over the line. It's a, it, it'd be historic. It'll be worth the effort, but it has been a long time coming. Yeah. Well, guys, we've got a lot of ground to cover. And just for the audience, we're recording this at uh, you know mid-afternoon, so 2 o'clock on, on the 10th um, when this is going to go live later. So we're going to be doing a little bit of speculating and uh, trying to suss out uh, some of the longer term as well as short term and immediate implications of what these these launches would look like. Um, and we've got a lot of questions for you, but before we get into some of the more serious stuff, guys, any comment on the uh, the little false start that we had with, we got to talk, right, about the, the SEC Twitter account, the, uh, the little gaffe and lack of two-factor. But yeah, any any takes or what, what do we think happened yesterday if we're taking bets on what happened with the SEC's Twitter account? Uh, my initial take was like, I thought for sure that was like just a draft tweet sitting in the sidelines. But the more I've dug in and looked into it, I, was, I think... It looks like it was actually somebody that compromised the account and took the time to create something. They must have had that ready to go because it looks like they only had access to the account for like a 15, 20 minute window based on what we're seeing. So they had to have had that ready to go before they got access to the account. And honestly, it was a pretty damn good impersonation. I mean, that sounded like a quote that Gensler would give. So the language was a tiny bit off, like with the way that they announced it. But it's not like, oh, my God, that's actually incorrect. It was just like, ah, that's a weird wording. But I didn't think about that till afterwards. Uh, Obviously, the first thing I thought was like, I can't believe they're announcing this on a tweet. But like I double checked to make sure it was the account. And I was hesitant. I tried to go to the SEC website, which wasn't working because I'm sure everybody else in the world was trying to do the same exact thing I was. Um, but yeah, just uh, a bad look, a black eye, and it's a bad look for both for the SEC. But I also think it kind of looks a little bad for for the industry. Not not the end of the world, but uh, pretty typical, I would say. Like it, it's only fitting that it would happen with, with with this. It was it was the most crypto moment uh, of all time. I think I think the clear winner out of it was uh, was the meme generators. Yes, Twitter. the meme game was strong in the aftermath of that. Uh, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, we were shocked. Uh, surprising that the SEC would use Twitter to make official announcements. So, you know, definitely some skepticism. Uh, uh, but what an incredible moment. It, it had to happen this way. We wouldn't have, you know, we wouldn't have gotten here without this kind of moment. Just just fantastic. Yeah. Well, I'm going to turn it over to Ben here in a second uh, to ask, ask the real questions. But one one funny thing I'd like to point out is something was getting retweeted quite a bit when we this is actually the second false start that we've had because we famously had Cointelegraph in turn, <laughs> right? Uh, launch the first false start uh, starting gun uh, a couple months ago. And the, the SEC actually tweeted out, hey, make sure that you're getting your don't believe everything you read on the internet, make sure you're getting it from credible sources. And people went back and found that and started retweeting it. So we have fun, you know, if this yeah, is a simulation. I will, s- I will s- shout out myself here. When that ha- when that tweet went out, I was one of the very first people to be like, this is not true. Um, there's no way. I don't see anything to confirm this, which 
I should have hesitated a little bit more, but I was like way too excited. It's I've, I've been, it's like, I'm like a coiled spring ready to go off if this thing actually happens after the amount of abuse I've taken from random anonymous accounts and TradFi people telling me there's no way this is going to happen ever. Um, let's so James. We love a self-call. <laughs> ben knows. I always ask this on BlockWorks meetings. They're like, we get a self-call uh, from anyone. So uh, we love that. That's uh, good energy. But Ben, you want to, um, now that the comic relief uh, that I've been, <laughs> trying to provide yours out of the way. Walk us through uh, some of the questions that you have on the, the flow side for these guys. Yeah, so I know at this time we're kind of uh, awaiting s- some final approval, uh, not not on X, hopefully, um, with, with filings and everything. But once the, assuming that these will uh, be approved and launch, um, you know, there's been a lot of speculation about the flows that these can see. We got a little taste of it with the first Bitcoin futures ETF that launched in October, 2021. Bitto, uh, few, uh, about a billion dollars came into that pretty quickly in the first few days. Um, there's a lot of uh, flow predictions out there. Um, just kind of curious of of your take on what kind of flows these could see early on, and and how much that will really matter. Uh, even though there's a lot of attention on that question. Yeah, great. Maybe I can provide some 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 numbers from the record. James can provide some commentary. Obviously, I can't predict how much will flow into our ETF because we have a filing live at the SEC. But what you see in the record is the predictions range long-term from about 30 billion to 200 billion. That's long-term. And I've seen predictions for year one, typically in the 10 to $20 billion range. It's worth pointing out from ETF history, that would be massive. I think the largest year one independent fundraising in an ETF was $5 billion in the queues which cover the NASDAQ 100, which is a much bigger market than Bitcoin. So pulling in 10 to $20 billion, if that happens, would be a new record and would be enormous. That said, I think it's at least possible. You know, we work with financial advisors. We've been working with them for seven years. We just did a survey. 88% of the ones surveyed said they were waiting for an ETF to buy, and it's a very big market. So um, could that happen? Yes. If it does, uh, it's it, it would be historic. Uh, I think that's possible, particularly over over many months and quarters. Um, some of the more hyperbolic things, I think, are outside the bounds. I don't know what James James feels about it. James, yeah, I com- I completely and fully agree with with Matt and everything that he just said. Right, like I, I've heard numbers out there, a hundred billion, like. Gold ETFs have been around since 2004, and they have less than 100 billion in assets. To put that in perspective, like I think if this asset class over the long term, three five years, has one to two percent of overall U.S. ETF assets, I think that might make sense. And also, I think that would be extreme success. So this idea that people think that this much money is just going to flow in and fall from the skies, I don't think that's going to happen. And the real there's going to be significant capital, from what I hear. Um, from some of these issuers and a lot of people around that there is significant capital ready to go into these ETFs on day one. Um, I think the number will be in the billions in the first couple of days. Um, who knows? Well, I'll wait to see before we before we see that. But um, I that number, it's unknown whether or not that's completely net new buying of this asset, right? Is that going to be money shifting from Canadian Bitcoin ETFs or a private trust? There's a lot of private funds out there um, if there, if you can take your your money out of there and put it into an ETF that is charging zero percent to start for at least the first six months, in many cases, um, even if you have Bitcoin custody at some of these institutional platforms, there's a significant fee in doing that. Some of them are higher than what the, they're definitely higher than the zero percent fee ones. But even still, some of them I think are likely to be higher than the all in fee on these ETFs, even after the fee waivers are gone. So I think there's going to be a lot of money that pours in. The question is, how much of it is that new? Is that is new assets versus just recycled assets that already have exposure to this asset class from somewhere else, um, which is going to take a little bit more art than science to to figure out as far as I'm concerned. Um, so that's what I'm going to be looking for going forward. But I'm, I'm with Matt. Where I, I, I've, I'm publicly on the over 10 in the first year, 10 billion and under 25 billion. Um, that said, I think also people are mixing up flows and assets. Flows is how you can look at organic demand. That's money coming into these things. Assets can go up with new flows and with performance or go down with performance. So there, I think there's a little bit of misconception between some people in talking about this. That said, I'll take the way under on some of these enormous uh, multi-hundred <laughs> billion dollar inflows in a year or two type stuff. Yeah, and Matt, you you mentioned the you know you mentioned the Bitwise survey that recently came out, 
um, with 88% of advisors that are interested in buying BTC are waiting for the ETF. Um, I saw also, you know, 80% of advisors are saying they're unable to buy crypto or unsure that they can. Uh, and 14% uh, said the launch of a Bitcoin ETF would kind of ease those concerns. Just kind of curious of your your take on those um, those figures there and kind of how that how that relates yeah. to the flow. That that actually is a perfect question. It really gets at the heart of the matter. You know, Bitwise, we serve financial advisors. That's our audience. But in order to invest in crypto as an advisor pre-ETF, you have to have such a high level of conviction. You have to use a private fund or an OTCQX traded trust. You have to challenge your compliance department. You have to leap over hurdles. It has to be uh, unsolicited. It, it's, it may be only for a few clients, only if they ask. You have to be at like 99% conviction. What the ETF does is it brings that down. It makes it as easy to allocate to uh, Bitcoin as it is to allocate to real estate, stocks, bonds, et cetera. Uh, and therefore, you could be 60% convicted that Bitcoin's a good idea. And all of a sudden, you can do it easily in an ETF because it's approved. One nuance that's important to note for the flows question is just because we get a Bitcoin ETF launch doesn't mean everyone can buy it day one. Uh, and James knows this, but particularly major wirehouses like Morgan Stanley or UBS or Merrill Lynch, that will roll on over months and quarters. And that's one of the reasons why you won't get $10 billion on day one. You have to get those subsequent approvals. But it is going to make it exponentially easier, easier by an order of magnitude. And I, I really think that's a big game changer. I've got a, I've got a question on the like on a more short-term oriented question, Matt. I know you want to spend time on the long-term, but I, I guess, do you have a sense of what the the broad sort of consensus expectations is from a flow standpoint? And then how are people going to judge whether or not that's successful? Like the framework that I have in my mind is almost like a company earnings call, right? Where there's sort of some consensus for the market where earnings are going to come in and how the price ends up performing is actually not just based on the absolute performance of the company, but how that performance is relative to everyone else's expectations. So I'm trying to get a sense of whether or not that mental framework is going to be relevant here. Like, is there some yeah. expectation of, you know, I'm making up numbers here, but, uh, you know, a billion dollars within the first week. And if we blow past that, is that very bullish? Or give me a sense of um, yeah. what the market expectation is and how performance is going to impact in the short term. I think, I think it's a great question. One shot on goal there is Bitto did, uh, what, a billion and a half uh, in its first day or its first week. Right. I think people would be excited to see these ETFs collectively do more than that. Uh, importantly, collectively, right? They're, they're, they're whatever, 12 filers, 13 filers. But I think I think the over-under is somewhere around there. If these come out and raise $150 million or something, people are going to be very disappointed. But if you're looking at the fastest growing ETF of all time, if you lump them into one, I think there'll still be a few people uh, making ridiculous predictions who are disappointed. But anyone in the ETF industry will know that's a huge success and know that it means that this asset class is going to grow over time. So that would be my... My bogey is beating BITO uh, for asset gathering. One one shot on goal. Yeah, I, I love that. I love that take there, actually. Like, I, I think that's the way to look at this. I, honestly, if you had asked me this, so if you had asked me this before the Ethereum futures launches went, I would have said undoubtedly spot Bitcoin ETFs are going to beat Bitto's record <laughs> in, in aggregate. Uh, the Ethereum futures were uh, very uh, disappointing. I, I had low expectations for the Ethereum futures ETFs overall, um, the lowest on my team. And I was still disappointed, even though <laughs> I had low expectations. So that kind of hindered my view. I always thought Spot was going to be the more interesting play and the more interesting um, aspect that advisors and people would go after. Um, but I didn't expect it to be that bad for for ETH. So I don't know how much that says about futures versus the underlying assets specifically here. Uh, that said, I think it, based on the numbers we're hearing, it, it, people should be people are likely to be very happy um, with what's going to happen. But I'll believe it when I see it. I've heard some big numbers out there from off the record from different people, and uh, so we'll, we'll see. 
What's going on, everybody? Thank you for listening to On The Margin. I just wanted to take a quick moment to let you know about a very special offer that we have coming out of Blockworks Research. Now, many of you will probably be familiar with our platform, but Blockworks Research is the most blue-chip spot to get research, data, governance, models, and a whole lot more about the leading DeFi protocols in the space. I've leaned on our analysts time and time again to explain complicated concepts going on in DeFi to me like I'm five years old. They can do the same for you. If you invest in DeFi or are just interested in it, it is an absolute no-brainer. As a listener of On The Margin, and to say thank you all for listening to the show, you can use Margin 10 for a 10% discount, and that gives you access to everything, which would be weekly in-depth reports, live data, all of that good stuff. So again, that's code MARGIN10 for a 10% discount. Link is in the show notes. Sign up now. Thank you later. Is, is there anything that we can learn? So one of the... It ended up actually being kind of interesting, right? So when the Cointelegraph intern tweeted that story out, the price of Bitcoin responded super positively. And then we all learned that it was fake very soon after. But it sort of started, the the price of Bitcoin, there was a huge run up, it sold off, but then it sort of started to consistently grind higher. And if I had to distill the consensus down into why that was, is everyone had kind of stopped looking at Bitcoin. And then everyone saw the reaction of what would happen if an ETF were to get approved. And it kind of woke everyone up and said, okay, we're a little bit (laughs) off sides here. So maybe we should actually ironically buy some Bitcoin. And that sort of kicked us off on this upward price trajectory. Um, If you look at what happened during our (laughs) the SEC Twitter accounts, 15 minutes of fame yesterday, uh, there was sort of interesting price action in that Bitcoin bounced immediately, which we all thought it sold off. But it didn't really recover quite so much. And actually, what ended up catching a little bit of a bid relative was ETH. So a lot of people within deep in the crypto industry pay attention to this ETH BTC ratio that actually basically looked like it formed a secular bottom because that has been a one way trip down for at least the last year or so. So, you know, can we infer anything from that? Is that useful information or is that just kind of meaningless noise? James, anything? Uh, on the ETH BTC ratio, or, or what the impact was from the the Coin Telegraph tweet? Kind of, kind of, kind of both. Like the SEC. Yeah. I, I will say this: I think most people didn't realize how close we were until the Coin Telegraph tweet went out, because that's when a lot of people started asking me questions. And I agree one hundred percent. It kind of woke people up because, obviously, at that point, we were very positive in the fact that we thought it was going to happen eventually. Obviously, I did not think that was a, it. Um, that said, uh, yeah, I, I don't have too much to say on the ETH-BTC ratio. I think uh, obviously Bitcoin has garnered a lot of the interest here. From my personal experience, anecdotally, it seems like the financial world, the TradFi world, advisors, they just um, they understand Bitcoin a little bit better when because they think that it's easier to tell the story of digital gold and, and all these things and transactions. And I think that the, the advisor world has just heard the word Bitcoin way more than they've heard Ethereum. So I think that's also part of this. There's just more interest in that asset, at least right now. Um, and obviously, the the ETF is, I think what that ratio shows is that a lot of this run-up is related to the prospect and eventuality, hopefully, that uh, these things are going to be approved. So um, yeah, I, that's the way I'm looking at it. And the, the one thing I'd throw out here is I, I think we see spot Ethereum ETFs in 2024. Um, nowhere near as confident as Bitcoin ETFs. Uh, Gary might have learned from his mistakes in approving Bitcoin futures ETFs and the stuff he did. Uh, that said, I, I think I do think we're going to see spot Ethereum ETFs too, uh, which I think some people are kind of pointing towards now. They're already like looking forward, and I've looked into that a lot recently. So I think this that ratio might reverse a little bit, especially if this uh, this narrative shifts to Ethereum as well. But it, like I said, I, I, Matt can probably talk about this more than I can because he's talking with advisors even more frequently than I do. And I think they just like and understand the prospects of, of Bitcoin, the asset versus Ethereum more so. Yeah, I, 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 I used to think that the advisors I talked to loved Ethereum more than Bitcoin because it has these use cases. But those turned out to be very... Uh, crypto-centric advisors. The average advisor, one lesson from the ETH futures launch, doesn't yet know the difference between the two assets. I think on the ETH bounce specifically, uh, I would say it's kind of overdue, maybe expected. It's being caught in a narrative vice between excitement around a Bitcoin ETF and excitement about Solana. And uh, those two have sort of squeezed it downward. uh, And it was probably overdue for a bounce. ETH has a lot going on on its own. I'm really excited about EIP-4844. Uh, as an example, and I think you'll you'll probably see a resurgence. So I think it was it was sort of prime for that. In terms of the price impact, 
uh, you know, I don't know what's going to happen short term. I will say there's, I see a broad confusion in the discussion. People talk about the ETF being priced in and assuming that there will be a sell-off, which is literally not what priced in means. Priced in would mean it launches and nothing happens, sort of meh. And there have been some good studies on, on, on ETF launches in other asset categories, and that's effectively what happens in the short term. So I think the base case should probably be, in the short term, it's priced in and meh. Uh, in the long term, I think people are dramatically underestimating the impact of the ETF. And, and regardless, we'll see volatility on launch day as people try to sort that out. All right. You, you sort of anticipated a, a future line of questioning on the ETH ETF. So uh, I was going to ask you about this. I, I asked um, I asked Eric uh, James, your counterpart at Bloomberg. And, and by the way, it looks like you're going to win that lunch bet uh, for folks for folks who uh, <laughs> yeah on uh, whether or not it was just going to be BlackRock or all the the issuers. But yeah, that I you know he actually referenced you specifically in that interview and mentioned that you were a little bit more bullish on the ETH ETF. And one thing that I've just consistently seen in crypto um, is whenever there is this enormous amount of consensus and buildup about a thing, it's I've never seen it actually be bullish for when the thing happens. Like there, there's just this what comes next that is a very powerful impetus uh, for driving price action in in crypto. And so it sort of made me think that the ETH ETF is worth looking at or I mean, people aren't really suggesting this yet, but it kind of seems like it's inevitable to me that a Solana or even a XRP, I can't believe those words are coming out of my mouth, but an XRP type ETF might ultimately end up following. So do you think that A, the ETH ETF ends up being a meaningful narrative uh, after this? And how would you guys weight the possibility of other crypto asset ETFs after the Bitcoin ETF? Yeah, I'll, I'll take a shot. James can, James can follow up. Um, look, I think we're, we're, we're entering, I hope, the ETF era of crypto. And there will be a before ETF and after ETF era. And uh, I think we're on the path eventually to have multiple crypto ETFs, to have index-based ETFs, to have active crypto fund ETFs. I think all of that is going to happen. From a regulatory perspective, um, it's a relatively large leap to Ethereum. It's not as, as easy as Bitcoin, and Bitcoin was very hard. And there are more moving parts and then right now, it's a big leap to Solana. Uh, and the big leap is because there's not a regulated futures contract on any, ET on any crypto asset besides Bitcoin and ETH. And even though we're talking about spot Bitcoin, the arcana of how these are approved requires a regulated market at this point. So I think there needs to be sort of uh, legislative or regulatory steps before we unlock that. But we eventually will. And hey, other countries have. If you go to Switzerland, uh, they're, they're, they're BNB ETFs. I mean, there's a wide variety of ETFs over there. So I think we will get there. Uh, I think ETH is in sight. I think anything beyond ETH is a little bit out of sight, but that doesn't mean we won't push and try to get to that point. Uh, I'll, I'll jump in real quick. I, I echo what Matt said. One, there was even a, there was an FTX ETF in in Europe. <laughs> there was an FTT token ETF in Europe. Just FYI, what? Um, no yeah. way. Yeah, twenty one shares. Twenty one shares. Who's partnered with Arc? They had an FTT ETF. Oh man! Look, I, as far as I'm concerned, like ETF, it's, it's you're going to wrap everything. Eventually, I do think everything you said is going to happen. But I'm with Matt. There is a chasm between Ethereum and everything else. Um, look, I, I'm of the opinion that I believe the SEC has implicitly accepted Ethereum as not being a security. Nothing saying that Gensler can't come out and do something and call it a security. But the way he's treated futures specifically on the CME for Ethereum, micro futures, options, like he could have challenged those as being securities futures versus commodities futures. He chose not to do that, or at least the SEC chose not to do that. He, they allowed Ethereum futures ETFs, just the whole process for Bitcoin ETFs, like as we're expecting, it was the futures, then a few different options of those futures. And then we got the futures ETF and now we're getting the spot ETF. I think the same thing is going to happen with Ethereum. It's worth it to note there is no other futures markets available that are regulated by the CFTC. Um, so the argument that was made in Grayscale's case and everything else, the only one that it stands for is um, Bitcoin and Ethereum right now, as far as I'm concerned. The other ones you said, I mean, if CME lists like Soul Futures or XRP Futures, maybe, or if we get some landmark court decision in this XRP case, potentially maybe that could say that it's not a security and then we could look at it. But I don't think anything's happening before that. We literally might need like 
People like to joke and say you need an act of Congress to get that done. You, you literally might need an act of Congress to get that done here. Um, change of administration. It's gonna t- it's gonna take time. So I'm viewing Bitcoin and Ethereum as over here, and then everything else is over here. You got to realize Sol- Solana and some of the other stuff. They're literally named as securities in the lawsuits against uh, Kraken and Coinbase and stuff. Like the SEC is not giving up on that, and I think the SEC is going to wage war on the broader crypto industry. Uh, I just think it's just not worth it for them to go after Bitcoin or Ethereum, um, and they've. It's the one thing we know Gary will say Bitcoin is a commodity, not a security. Like I said, he won't he won't say Ethereum is a commodity, but he also won't say it's a security. Um, so I think if he if he goes after ETH, it's it's not just going to be a lot of these industry players. It will also be the CFTC that he has to contend with. And it's just not worth it. They don't they don't need to be fighting that. So that's my stance on that topic. But yeah, I, I think anything else, XRP might be next because of just the the lawsuit, but they would have to win the lawsuit. But really, what you really probably need is to see futures, uh, regulated futures markets on anything. Um, so long way off. Got it. W- one last question on this, and then I'll, I'll turn it over to Ben to to talk about the the fee derby that we've been seeing. Um, is on you know, Matt, you bring up a really interesting point, and I, I don't know how much this has crossed the chasm of sort of uh, crypto natives into more mainstream, but this narrative squeezing of ETH. It you know, I, I'm kind of remembering now how I thought about this about a year ago when the you know a bitcoin etf is the sort of feel an emotional feel of bitcoin is like very sort of solid uh you know doesn't take risks ossified um maybe yeah we'll leave it at those adjectives and (laughs) and what eth also had uh, going for it was like eth is nasdaq eth is tech and uh and it was like fang, right? Like kind of the fang of crypto. And I saw that being a really powerful narrative. And I think you started to see that play out at the end of last cycle. But one thing that's happened that's interesting is even within the last year, ETH has moved away from that a little bit. And now internally, they talk about ultrasound money. And actually, it's a deflationary asset. And I actually take it on a lot of the narrative arguments of something like, like Bitcoin. And so I guess... Like how serious of a? I guess I'm kind of finding myself agreeing with you a little bit. Um, like, yeah, where do you see East kind of narrative going full full stop? Do you think that Nasdaq thing still applies to to ETH? And uh, yeah, leave leave yeah. it there. I, I it's a it's a great point. I think they'll get back to the Nasdaq style narrative. By they, I mean the community. So I don't really know what those words string together into a sentence uh, mean implicitly. But I I think the the narrative that ETH rallies around ultimately is as a decentralized computer for the world. And I think that's a really powerful narrative. And the ultrasound money aspects of it really speak to the token economics and why ETH as a token uh, has and can accrue value. I don't think, uh, I think it's a long way for ETH to challenge Bitcoin as as a new money. I think Bitcoin just is, a, is an almost insurmountable lead in people's minds. So I think that that tech narrative reemerges. And then I think the question is, uh, ETH and layer twos versus the the monolithic form of of Solana, and uh, I think that's an interesting dynamic, and it makes more sense to have competitive dynamics in a technology space than it does in a monetary space. Monetary space often accrue to a single uh, best form, and technology there's always competition. So I think that's ultimately where the narrative lies: is technology with good token economics, and uh, I suspect we'll get back to that as sort of app usage, DeFi usage, gaming, all those other things come back online in a major way as we enter year two and three of the bull market. Yeah, I, I so like my expertise is really on the fun side of things, but obviously I am conversational enough in all these topics because I listen to enough podcasts to keep up to date for myself and I have personal interest in this space. That said, I agree with everything Matt said. I think part of the problem right now is that like, he mentioned it. I don't even know if he said it in that answer, but it's like ETH is competing with Soul on that front. And ETH, like I view decentralization as a spectrum, which like a Bitcoin maxi will scream their head off at me saying that. So like on one end, you have Bitcoin and then you have Ethereum here and then Solana is less decentralized, but faster and all these different things. So there's like this competing narrative. So I, I love the way that Matt particularly framed that. And I think part of the reason why what he just spoke about is also the reason why advisors are more akin and understand the benefits and pros cons of something like Bitcoin as digital gold versus they don't really comprehend what's going on right now with um, Ethereum and Solana and and the like. Fair enough. You'd be surprised how many of these advisors don't like fully understand this, uh, much of this at all, really. Like you saw it from Matt's, Matt's, and Bitwise's survey, 
Well, I think 39, only 39% of advisors were expecting these things to be approved. And that's specifically with Bitcoin. You could ask, I bet you 90 plus percent of them couldn't tell you the difference between Solana or Ethereum or a monolithic chain versus you name it. They, they, they don't know any of this. And at some point, some of them will get up to speed. But for the most part, they're, they're oblivious to what's going on right now. Yeah, that's, that's actually a really important point. I'll, I'll just share an anecdote. I was in Pittsburgh yesterday at a CFA Society dinner which are uh, chartered financial analysts, these, these analysts who have passed these rigorous tests, very smart people. I didn't get a single question about the ETF to understand like how far, how much we're in this tunnel. Uh, they still had basic questions about Bitcoin and how it works and criminal activity and things like that. So it's important to sometimes step out of the bubble and remember that that's where a lot of TradFi remains. Hmm. I, I would actually, just in response to James, your point there about Advisors not understanding the difference between Ethereum and Solana. I think many people in crypto don't fully understand the difference in between them, really. And if you ask them, they'd say one is decentralized and the other is fast, but they couldn't articulate the the architecture decisions that actually support those ideas and memes. So um, anyway, we, we can end it there. And I, uh, ben, I, I'd love to, to turn it over because I feel like what's been really grabbing headlines in what is pretty unprecedented uh, in terms of fee structure here is the the rapid compression. So maybe Ben, I'll, I know you've been covering it uh, from Blockworks side, so I'll turn it over to you to start leading the discussion there. Yeah. So just setting the scene for a second, obviously in October 2021, when Bitcoin futures ETFs launched, Bitto uh, by ProShares kind of had a little bit of a head start. A lot of the assets went into that one. Um, the thought is that it's going to be different this time with a bunch of uh, funds launching at the same time. Um, so we've seen uh, competition with fees as a result in the uh, latest registration statements. Um, Bitwise seems to be the lowest right now with at 20 basis points and uh, BlackRock and ARK as recently as this morning um, dropped their fees to 25 basis points, 21 basis points. There's a lot of other issuers at the, kind of the same level. So just kind of curious of your thoughts on, obviously, uh, this is going to be one of the differentiating factors Um with so many potentially launching at the same time, uh, did you kind of, did you guys kind of expect it to be this low? I mean, obviously, uh, Matt is kind of in the internal conversations with all all this, but um, maybe James, you know, to start, did you expect it to be this low? And and what do you make of it? Yeah, no, not even close. Like I was thinking, if we can get under forty bips, that would be that would be a really successful. And, and I, I can, we can go back and a lot of people were like, no shot, it's getting that low. Um, but I, I thought we were going to be sub 50. I thought getting sub 40 would be successful. And Fidelity basically came out the gate at 39 basis points. Um, Matt, obviously, at Bitwise right now is the low stick. But I think the main thing here is it's not necessarily that you need to be the lowest for everyone, right? The, every, all of these people, including Matt at Bitwise, including people at BlackRock and Fidelity, they have relationships with some clients. And these clients are going to, are probably already lined up to put some money in here. So th- as long as you're competitive on fees, like I'm not saying you, it, like if you, if you have a client lined up and say you're somebody like Fidelity, right? And you were going to charge, I don't know, 70 basis points, but then you have somebody over here like Bitwise is going to be charging zero and then 20, 20 bips. Um, that's a much harder conversation to be like, I'm going to put my client or I'm going to put our money in something that's going to charge 80 bips. But when you're talking about a relationship and like five bips here or there, I don't think that's going to make a difference. So everyone's kind of having to coalesce down near a certain number in order to be competitive. Everyone except for a grayscale. That said, we've seen a compression of like, we see these fee wars in the ETF marketplace. Matt has been covering this for while I was in, since before I was in high school, essentially. And it's something that's been going on forever, right? Everyone's trying to undercut fees by a basis point here. And and it's not that you completely demolish the other person's business, but the, the, if you're competing at someone in one area, whether it's muni bonds or equities or something like that, one basis point means that you're likely, if you're the lowest cost provider, you're going to get most of the flow. So you're going to win the flow crown that year in that category. So we see this play out over months months and years over time. And what we just saw happen in the last week is unlike anything I have ever seen. It was like, it was a fee war that usually takes years compressed down into literally like a week. And it was, it's been, it's been a clinic. We have, I, I don't even know how many of these guys, seven of these guys, eight that have, um, uh, fee waivers on many of them are going down to complete 0% fees. Um, the end, the winner here, like that everyone listening needs to know is the end consumer and the end investor like this, this is good for them and watch for these, these really tight fees. I kind of hinted at the beginning, it is going to drive into the broader crypto ecosystem. Yes. Right now it's just Bitcoin ETS, but these, this is going to drive down costs for everyone. Yeah. 
uh, I, I'm, I'm a little bit limited in what I can say. Uh, the compliance genie is sitting on my shoulder, but I'll, I'll say, you know, from a, an ETF industry perspective, as James suggested, uh, the main thing in ETFs historically has been to keep the main thing, the main thing. And the main thing has been uh, fees in many areas of the market. Uh, and so it's not surprising that there's there's intense price competition. Other, obviously, there are other uh, aspects to evaluating ETFs. Those will come into play as well. Um, but this is this is one of them. And I think you're right, James. The winner is the end investor, right? If you think about the difference in fees between uh, Bitcoin funds that exist today and Bitcoin funds that will exist after an ETF launch, uh, you're talking about potentially hundreds of millions of dollars that uh, Americans are saving, which is which is pretty cool. Um, and, and, and a net good for the world. And just to note that Fidelity, which did come out with the 39 base points number you referenced, um, they, they had dropped to 25 later on. Uh, so yeah, so everyone keeps dropping, but, um, and, and they also have a, a fee waiver too. So they're also in the camp of offering a fee waiver through some set date or timeline. I don't know if that it's whatever. I don't know what the top of my head, but they're also in the 0% camp for the first, for a certain period of time. Yeah, maybe a quick follow up, James. Uh, you know, Grayscale we saw stayed at uh, you know one and a half percent fee, down from two two percent of what uh, GBTC currently is per year. Um, not as low as maybe some people thought. Curious of your thoughts there. Uh, not as low as I thought. I thought they would go to around. My guess was sixty basis points or sixty nine. That was really what I thought. I thought that's what they were going to go to. Look, let's be clear here. When you have as much of a head start as they do, it is it, they're they're virtually unbeatable as far as I'm concerned in this in this situation. I mean, they trade over the counter, and if they were just made into an ETF tomorrow, which they very well may be, um, they'd be in the top one percent of ETFs by trading volume. Two percent, maybe, if you want to get there. One of the largest. It will be. It would be one of the top one to two percent ETFs by assets too. I mean, this is not. This is not child's play here. This is a lot of money. That said, one point five percent is a huge number, and I think it's. I, I can't believe they stuck it with that high. They have been saying they were going to lower fees. I'm shocked they only went to one point five. Um, perhaps there's more here behind the scenes that we don't know exactly what's going on. Uh, perhaps they have uh, agreements that they're already paying for their third parties that. Um, they're, they can't change. I'm not really sure. I have theories on what they're going to do here. But I, if I were them, I probably would have lowered it more. But I don't, I'm not in the room. I don't know what's going on. That said, stealing assets, I mentioned, it's easy to win the flow crown if you're the lowest cost provider or do certain things. You have a unique spin and you're performing really well. It's relatively easy to steal assets. And I don't, it, actually, it's very hard, but it's much easier than stealing liquidity. Once you have something that has built up liquidity and traders are using it, there's an ecosystem around it. It is very hard to siphon that away from one player, and great GBTC has that. So we have examples all over the ETF industry that of these products that become we call them pseudo future ETFs. People use them in place not just as long term investments, but also as trading vehicles and pseudo derivatives. Um, so that's kind of I guess GBTC is leaning on that front, and I have a theory on what they're going to do next. But I don't know how much Matt can say on this topic, but I, I can go in with my theory after he chimes in. Virtually nothing, James. So I'm excited to hear your theory. Uh, I'm, I'll be the audience for this one. Yeah, my my running theory right now is that they're going to launch a separate Bitcoin ETF with ticker BTC and a much lower fee that would compete. Um, this is what ETF issuers have done. It's been a playbook of iShares, BlackRock, uh, State Street, and some others. Uh, and so what they do is they have one of those ETFs that's the first of its kind. It had charges higher fees, but it has all the trading volume. It's what traders use. It's where most of the options are off of. Um, and they just don't have to lower the fees. So rather than lower the fees on that product, they basically cannibalize themselves. So they'll launch a product that charges a quarter of what's currently going on. We see this with GLD and GLDM from State Street. iShares did this with uh, their emerging markets ETFs. Um, and then they, iShares also did it with their gold ETFs. Um, so they have much higher cost ETFs that the traders like to use. But then they also offer something that's a quarter of the price. So like GLD is at 40 bips right now. They have GLDM at 10 bips. So like if you're a long-term buy and hold investor, you're going to go with GLDM. But if you care about liquidity and trading, you're trying to get in and out over a shorter time period, it's actually likely cheaper to use the higher expense ratio because the expense ratio is taken out over a year-long time frame. Um, so that's what matters. And the other fact of the matter with GBTC is that people are sitting on a lot of embedded gains, almost certainly. So unless you're in an IRA, 
it might just be cheaper if you don't want to deal with those capital gains, just stay and eat the one, take the 1% fee, 1.5% fee. So if you're in a tax advantage account, I'm sure people will leave. I think there's going to be a lot of money that leaves the GBTC product and goes into some of these other competing products. Um, I just don't know how much money that will be. And that's one of the things I'll be watching over the first few days and weeks. Man, that is so interesting. Does does that does the calculus change here? Because again, this is a a little bit of a unique situation in that. I, I mean, I don't really know what it was like during the launch of GLD. The GLD is still the king. I think there's what there's IAU and then there's everything else. So does it change? Does the calculus change because there are so many competing issuers that are the bitwises of the world that have great products? Like you know what I'm saying? I I, I could imagine if it was just GBTC that had however many billion assets, like 40 billion or something they might they might have in there now? 30, 30 right now, roughly. Um, yeah, if they had that, and then no one else was really competing, maybe one or two others, and then they kind of had this other product. I could see that, but does it change the calculus because there's just so much choice? Or what do you think? It's a good theory. I haven't heard that before. That's yeah, that's my that's my base theory. Um, I, I, I think, I'm not really sure, right? I'm sure they have relationships with end investors who would love to do that. Um, and so, yeah, I, I don't think it changed. My theory wouldn't change. I actually tweeted that they should do this back in 2021 and I have this proof to show it. Um, but, uh, I don't think the number of ETFs changes the calculus here. I mean, I think they kind of accepted that they're gotten used to this. I mean, if you were, if you think about it, if you're used to getting this money at a 2% clip on however many billions of dollars every year, it's, it's would be really hard to stomach, like cutting things down to the level that we're talking about. I mean, at, at two bips, I mean, at 20 bips, you're looking at like what one tenth of what you were getting, you got to multiply that by 10 to go to 2%. So I, I think they just know they have embedded people with embedded gains that they don't want to pay. It's better than paying a 20% capital gains rate. And they also might, there's assets tend to be sticky. So I talked about like, um, it's easy to steal assets. For the most part, I meant just via flows. Assets tend to be very sticky. There are ETFs that have massive runs. DXJ is a great example from 2013. That's the only thing to take the, the crown for the, the largest ETF um, flows for a single year. Uh, it was just invest in Japan and heads out the Japanese yen, which we don't need to get into the details, but it, it was a massive run up and it had significant outflows. But even still, it's a multi-billion dollar fund. Like it had, it got bled to to death and it still is a multi-billion dollar fund earning significant assets. So even if GBTC sees like 50% of its assets go or even more over the next year, it's still a very profitable product for them. Yeah. Man, that's actually kind of is the calculus, right? 50% outflows versus, you know, you're still at, oh God, I'm going to try to do math on the fly here, but that's still, uh, you know, three, <laughs> God, I'm not going to try to, it's more than you would otherwise, right? If you cut down your fees to what everyone else is trying to charge. Um, exactly. Yeah, there's 25 billion in that fund uh, in GBTC right now. And and Dave Natick had some thoughts about that, our friend over at Vetify. Um, with, uh, so a, a story on bloggers.co you can go check out uh, with further coverage self, on that. Self call. Um, <laughs> one bit of context for the audience actually who might not be totally aware so GBTC is a product that is owned by Grayscale so Grayscale is one of the subsidiaries of uh, Digital Currency Group which is a sort of crypto conglomerate you might call it which is owned by Barry Silbert and there was a little bit of trouble with one of the sister companies of Grayscale a company called Genesis a prime broker and institutional lender within crypto where sort of famously um, you know, shut their doors and there was a lot of problems with uh, their, one of their counterparties, Gemini Earn. And so, you know, uh, an additional for, for folks who just might not be aware of that relationship with GBTC and their ultimate beneficial owner. And uh, that that might also be factoring into why the fees are still the, what they are. So I don't know if you guys think that's part of the story. But I think that's possible yeah. as well. I think that's that's a I think that's a possible impact. The other thing I would point out with that is that um, DCG owns 6% or 5% of the shares standing in GBTC. And we know they have debts in Bitcoin. So I think part of the reason that they were fighting so hard to do in-kind and not cash is some of the stuff you were just talking about. Because in a cash create process, they cannot, they would have to sell the shares essentially because they're going to incur capital gains in the current structure. 
um, to sell. But if you could theoretically take the Bitcoin out and just take delivery of the Bitcoin as DCG, that would have been so much more valuable to you because you don't have to deal with any of those potential tax consequences. Um, so that's interesting to note. So I, I'll be watching to see. Uh, we probably won't know what DCG does with these assets until... Um, I guess after the the first quarter, when we have these 13F filings come out, uh, so sometime in April. But I'm I'm suspecting that DCG is going to sell their GBTC shares uh, once this thing is an ETF. But time will tell. Um, that's probably a good lead into the the distinction in between cash versus in kind. In terms of I, a, I don't know if there's some sort of tax. Can you just walk the audience through uh, what that what that is? Why the SEC preferred a cash creation versus in-kind. And um, yeah, I, I, I was kind of thinking about maybe there's some connection there in between you know, the calculus that was run on the GBTZ side about who may or may not redeem if it's a tax creation event. But can you just walk us through what that distinction is and why the SEC was pushing for cash? You want me to do that, Matt? Are you allowed? Are you allowed to comment on this? Or? I, can, I don't know what the compliance uh, no, theory is why I'm not here. I can talk big picture about how ETFs work. Uh, I mean, just for the audience, the, the the differences in how new shares of an ETF are created. Um, so let's let's think about a Bitcoin ETF. In an in-kind model, when you wanted to create new shares of an ETF because there is demand, people wanted to buy it. This group of institutional investors called authorized participants would go and buy Bitcoin, and then they would just give it to the ETF issuer. So if it was a Bitwise ETF, they would buy the Bitcoin, they would give it to us, and we would give them shares of the ETF of equal value that they could sell onto the market. It's called in-kind because it's in-kind grant of Bitcoin for shares. The way the cash model is, those authorized participants, if people want to buy ETF and they need to create shares, they'll give Bitwise or another ETF issuer cash and it'll be Bitwise's job to go out and buy the Bitcoin, right? So it's it's a question of who is buying the Bitcoin, the authorized participant or the ETF issuer. Most ETFs are in-kind. It's slightly more efficient. You can think about it from an ETF issuer's perspective. With in-kind, I don't have to do anything. With cash, my cash, my, my trading team needs to go out and source Bitcoin and buy it. But it's an incrementally small difference. I think when the first discussion broke around cash versus in-kind, there was a lot of discussion on whether it would create adverse tax consequences if there were redemptions. And uh, we can get into the weeds if you want, if you want but most people's uh, opinions are that it will not, that they're essentially tax equivalent between in-kind and cash. So you're really talking about this marginal difference in efficiency. I don't think investors will experience it. It sort of blows my mind that uh, crypto Twitter has been talking about in-kind creations. I think it's I think it's really like a, a centimeter difference on a mile long run uh, between those two. The reason, just to, to to finish, the reason the SEC was concerned about it is these authorized participants are broker dealers, and right now broker dealers can't touch Bitcoin. And so, how are they going to acquire Bitcoin if they can't touch it? We called it uh, the MC Hammer problem because you can't touch this, and uh, and so they couldn't touch it, and so the cash. The cash model uh, uh, fixes that. Now, I think eventually we'll get to in-kind, but, but you know, to get to launch, uh, everyone's settled on, on a cash create. Yeah, I would just add what I would echo what Matt said and also say that like one of my number one concerns was the tax part of this, and I was proven wrong to worry about the tax issues. Uh, so that's one key thing. The other thing he hinted at is that the issuers themselves are going to be the one executing these trades. The benefit of the in-kind is that you outsource that execution problem, right? It's it's on these big Wall Street trading firms to get the Bitcoin and hand it over to the issuer and they don't have to worry about it. So we could see differences in performance depending on who these execution agents are for these, these fund companies, whether or not they have in-house trading floors, who what have you getting exposure to Bitcoin. So it's one way that these, uh, these ETFs might be able to differentiate themselves from the other players, particularly of somebody who's not good at getting caught good execution, whether you're buying or selling the Bitcoin for inflows or outflows. Um, yeah. I'll, I'll, the, the other thing the, that Matt kind of hinted at is like, they did come up with loopholes that these broker dealers would be able to handle the Bitcoin. 
Um, and that's what iShares and Grayscale mm-hmm. and Fidelity and a bunch of these other people were trying to get through to the SEC. The brokers were ready to use these loopholes. The problem is when you use those loopholes, one, you're taking it kind of out of the SEC's purview and control because it's not within the actual broker dealer that's registered with them. And two, at the end of the day, the SEC, we know the SEC is not comfortable with this. They're SAB 121. The brokers can't touch this, as, as Matt said. And you're basically okaying a loophole to go outside of something they're not de facto okay with. It It just, the the semantics don't, they don't look good, right? And then also we've heard some concerns that it might have to do with also KYC, you know, your customer and anti-money laundering. And it, by having this in-house at the issuers and the people that are de facto covered on the SEC's purview, um, they could handle any issues that they're worried about by going directly to the issuers. They don't have to worry about where and who actually got a hold of the Bitcoin to put stuff into this trust. Yeah, probably, probably one more note just to build on that. Cash models have created, have existed in ETFs for years, right? This is not like a new concept. Cash-based ETFs work. They work well. They have a proven track record. Uh, I think if people know how to, to trade crypto effectively, the market is you know institutional enough and liquid enough uh, to facilitate trading. So uh, for, from an investor's perspective, it's nice to debate the details, but you know this is a standard ETF model that's existed before, just adapted into Bitcoin. Yeah, there's over 400, I believe, that are cash create. And the ones that have volume and trade like significantly, uh, like any other ETF, they trade with very tight spreads. You have the best traders in the world operating these things on the bid-ask spread. So expect these things to trade relatively tight. There might be some hiccups initially when these things initially start launching and the people are trying to create and do that creation process as demand grows. Um, but for the most part, these things will trade extremely tightly and extremely cheaply because there will be on most of the platforms you'd buy these, there's no commissions. Got it. Um, uh, Ben, I don't know if you have any more. uh, Oh, we might have lost. There we go. (laughs) Got an extra Ben here. All right. um, Excellent. So, uh, Ben, I don't know if you have any more specific questions around fees or the specific construction of the ETFs. Or I want to make sure we get a a couple of closing questions on sort of longer term implications of this as well. But anything else that we might have missed? I do. I do have a hard stop in like three to four minutes, just FYI, but I'm ah, happy to stay on. Got it. Okay, got it. Well, we can um, – here, why don't we uh, do this? Because I know, uh, Matt, we wanted to talk for a little bit longer about some of the longer-term implications. So, James, if we could just get kind of a, a sign-off from from your perspective here on just uh, maybe closing thoughts. And then, Matt, if you've still got a couple minutes to hang on, we can get some of your, your longer thoughts on this. But, yep. um, yeah, James, like close closing thoughts on um, – I guess, you know, for you, it has been a great journey uh, for, for for us folks on the, the crypto side of things. We'd love to see your and Eric's commentary. It's been uh, it's been wonderful. We, we hope you stick around after the, the Bitcoin ETF goes live. But um, what maybe didn't we get to or uh, maybe some and if actually, you know what, I'm just going to ask you to put you on the spot here. And we, we, we got your flows prediction. If you have an AUM prediction for where we end up uh, at the end of this year, I'd, I'd put you on the spot to try to answer that as well. AUM is really hard because you have to take into account performance. Um, that said, my number would probably be 50, I would guess, 50 billion. That includes the nearly 30 billion from GBTC right now. It's somewhere between 25 and 30 based on current prices. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that would be a very, very successful year um, for a new, uh, literally it's starting from zero as far as I'm concerned. You do have the Bitcoin futures ETS with a couple billion, but for the most part, you're starting from zero and to get to 50 in one year would be virtually unprecedented. Um, that said, my, my closing thoughts are like, Look, obviously, we, we're pretty confident this is going to happen. It's been fun. Uh, I sit in kind of a similar situation that Matt does in the sense that I have most of my expertise in the TradFi world, and I've gone up and like really done my due diligence to try and understand as much as I can in this other world. Um, and it's like a very nice place to be uh, because you find that people have takes from both sides on the other side that in many cases are just completely wrong, like literally factually inaccurate. So it's a nice area to be like, no, this is actually how it works. Um, that said, the main thing I think I... Matt's probably going to say the same thing uh, after I go, but I think people are way too focused on like what's happening over the next week or a couple of months. I think it's going to be the more longer term impact that people should pay attention to. These huge wirehouse platforms that a lot of these brokers and advisors work at, they have like, they are, they're going to do their due diligence. You're not going to, be able to buy these things immediately in many cases. Some cases, I'm sure you will. They've, they've, I'm sure these issues have been doing the work behind the scenes, but many are going to require a certain number uh, of years of track record, certain AUM, 
Um, a lot of time is going to go into whether or not they're going to allow people to buy on the platform. There's usually like a green light, a yellow light, and a red light. And yellow light means you have to go through some hoops and holes before you can buy it for your client. Once these things get to the green light level and a client comes to an advisor asking it, that's when things will happen. But I don't think that's going to happen immediately for most of these platforms. So the longer term impact of these is what we're going to be paying attention to. And advisors, people keep saying no one really cares about the futures ETS. Advisors, institutions, they do not want futures ETS for long-term allocation. And even for trading, they would prefer spot. So these are the holy grail of how we think that this should be offered in the traditional financial rails. Um, that said, well, uh, once we get to in-kind being allowed, I think that'll be just one step closer, but we're 99.9% .9 of the way there. I think the cash versus in-kind for 99% of investors is relatively irrelevant. You wouldn't even be able to tell the difference if uh, us, us pundits weren't talking about it. And quick quick tech on James, do, do you have five years from now who you think will have the largest spot Bitcoin ETF? Mm, good question. Uh, I don't want to. I don't want to. It do was that. obviously. I don't want to. I don't want to play favorites. I, I'm not. I can't do that. I I think obviously. Good luck to Matt and Bitwise. Grayscale has a massive head start. We'll see what happens there. You can't discount iShares or Fidelity. And then who knows how much people are going to care about the crypto-centric nature of some of these issuers uh, and their partners. Um, so I, I, I'm fascinated to watch. I don't think, I'm not looking at this and be like, oh, they're going to be gone. I think some people are going to have to leave in the next 12 months. But I, I think that a lot of these guys, um, there's, there's been a lot of work, money, time, and effort that has gone on behind the scenes that even before people started paying attention to us covering it, it's been going on for many years, uh, as Matt can attest to. Um, so I really hope all of them find a way to or eke out a, a little bit of a niche here and have profitable products after, after the time, effort, and energy they've put into these things. Excellent. Thanks, James. Well, James, Thanks, I know you got to drop. You can drop. Yep. And Matt will hang back and got a yep. couple more questions. Have a good one. Thanks, James. Good to see you guys. Thanks for coming on. All right, Matt. Give us the give us the longer term here, all right? So we spent a lot of time in the weeds getting very tactical, um, but help help us zoom out for a second, and you know just to set a little bit of historical context. A, a cool bit of Bitcoin history is January tenth is actually the day that Hal Finney tweeted out in two thousand nine running Bitcoin. So I don't know if you're a nerd or you care about this space. There's a little bit of you know goosebump raising kind of good feeling ethos uh, to this. But also, this has been something that's been in the works for 10 years, right? So the, I believe it was the, the Winklevi who first filed back in uh, 2013. So can, can you help us, help us uh, sort of understand the historical significance and unpack some of the longer-term implications of what a Bitcoin ETF means? Yeah, for sure. I'll start at the 50,000-foot the view and then give a more number-specific view uh, in a second. From 50,000 feet, uh, if you're if you're in Bitcoin because you think it's going to develop to a new monetary standard and a new apolitical currency rail that makes the world a better place, uh, you need Bitcoin to be bigger and more robust and more widely owned than it is today. And an ETF is a necessary milestone to that. It's unlocking 80% of the U.S. capital market, which effectively can't allocate to Bitcoin today. Uh, and it can't get to where it's going without being able to tap into that market we know from our survey, those people want to use an ETF to get there, at least initially, and then they may become more crypto native over time. So this is, I would say, a really important milestone in the history uh, of Bitcoin and on its long-term trajectory, if you think it's going uh, where I think it's going. On a more narrow perspective, we know from past examples that the launch of an ETF brings an asset class from the niche to the mainstream. Uh, when gold, when the gold ETF launched in 2004, 20 years ago, uh, gold was not a mainstream asset. People who owned gold were called uh, gold bugs. We talked about tinfoil hats. And it was a very small asset, only a couple trillion dollars. Uh, yeah. Today, it's $15 trillion and it's owned by the largest institutions in the world. And it's, it's considered a serious asset. Uh, the price of gold also went up nine consecutive years after the ETF launched. That doesn't mean that will happen in Bitcoin, but it is a demand shock into an asset whose price is driven by supply and demand. And so I think people probably are over-focused on the next week and the next month, and they probably miss the, the, the big story by 10x in terms of its importance in bringing these assets mainstream. So that's my, that's my 50,000 foot view. It's very good for Bitcoin. It's lowering costs. It's widening ownership. Uh, and it, it's good for Bitcoin as an asset as well, uh, if that's what your interest is. So, so no matter how you look at this, uh, you should be cheering this on. 
So I've got uh, one, if I had to poke at that a little bit, let me, let me ask you this. Cause we had Jim Bianco on uh, a couple weeks ago and he was, and, and you see this from uh, guys who've been on this program who I have an enormous amount of respect for Ben hunts of the world and, and Jim that express the maybe, maybe a counter viewpoint to this, which is that, Hey, Bitcoin is supposed to be this form of non-sovereign money. This, uh, you know, it was created as a direct, direct, uh, I don't know, rebellion, I suppose, to what what happened in 2009, right? That was the message that was inscribed on the Genesis block that, you know, uh, Chancellor on the brink of second bailout for banks. And at the end of the day, what we're kind of doing and institutionalizing, it might be diluting a little bit of that message. And if ultimately the desired form of holding Bitcoin is through an ETF that's subject to the same restrictions that we were trying to get away from, aren't we departing from the ethos or the message here? Well, what would you say to that pushback, Matt? Yeah, I, I think it's fake nostalgia belied by the data. Uh, I don't want to go back to the day of local Bitcoin meetups and uh, and taking cash to buy Bitcoin at coffee shops. Um, look, if you look, I'll use that gold example. People said the same thing about a gold ETF. It's not real gold. If you want to own gold, you should buy gold bars and stick them under your bed. Uh, and look what happened after the gold ETF launch. The demand for gold bars multiplied by five. The amount of annual purchases of gold bars and coins rose by five. The ETF competed with gold bars. It was cheaper, but it brought so many people into the asset class that quote-unquote native use of gold uh, had its largest explosion in modern history. And the same thing will happen here. Many people will choose to own Bitcoin in an ETF, but actually the ripple effect is much larger. That's one of the reasons why these flows questions sort of missed the big picture, 10 billion, 20 billion, 30 billion, uh, it's going to bring a sea of people into the Bitcoin space because it it upcycles the market as a whole. It widens the educational funnel. And so you're going to see an explosion of self-custodied wallets. You're going to see an increase in trading uh, on DeFi platforms and centralized finance platforms. The whole tide is going up. So uh, I don't have that sort of purist mentality. It's not what gold sort of showed could happen with a non-sovereign store of value. And I think it won't happen again here. I think this is a catalyst moment to achieving Bitcoin's specific ends. I think it's pretty exciting. I do too. Can we get your predictions, Matt? I don't know if the compliance fair is going to let you, but an AUM prediction and a... Uh, we know the winner. <laughs> the winner's yeah, going to yeah, be the yeah. of course. <laughs> uh, the compliance genie sitting on my shoulder. What we've put out, uh, which I can say because it's in the public record, is we think over the next five years, Bitcoin ETFs could attract 55 billion of net new flows. And um, that's that's beyond what's already in GBTC. So that's net new money coming into the space. Uh, for reference, the gold ETFs have $100 billion or so, uh, or, or that's where they peaked. So that would be a real success case. We're on the conservative side. Many people think more. Um, but either way, I think it's going to be a significant success. Yeah, I've... Two two closing questions for you, Matt. Which is one, this maybe the yeah. We're, so in addition to the the catalyst of the ETF, we also have the halving. And for those who track these four year cycles that crypto has been going through, what we're seeing is a very very typical uh, four year cycle starting to repeat itself again, where we're on sort of this crypto spring or or come up again. And I think one of the things that might be different this time, and why it might be so sort of symbolically perfect to have the the ETF, knock on wood, being approved on the eve of a new bull market would be, this could be the first real institutional bull market. So last, last uh, back in 2020, you know, famously, <laughs> Paul Tudor Jones called Bitcoin the fastest horse. And that was a watershed moment where you would never had anyone with the institutional chops that Paul Tudor Jones has come out and said anything beneficial about Bitcoin. Even if you rewind the clock back pre-2020, None of these macro podcasts were talking about Bitcoin. That was not a thing that was talked about. So I think Larry Fink is in a completely different category here. Larry is as much respect as Paul Tudor Jones has. Larry Fink controls more assets, arguably, than anyone else in the world. People like to say BlackRock's an extension of the U.S. government. They're certainly highly regulated. So do you think that we're on the eve of the first real institutional cycle for Bitcoin? And crypto? Absolutely. Absolutely. The ETF opens those doors. Just close your eyes and think about Bitcoin with BlackRock not touching it, and then BlackRock having an ETF. Those are two different worlds. I think mm -hmm. this is the mainstream cycle of crypto. If, if last were, the last cycle was the early application cycle, and before that was the Ethereum cycle, and before that was the Bitcoin cycle, this is the, the mainstream uh, 
uh, asset of of, Bitcoin, of of crypto. And um, I think that's a very exciting cycle. I think it's the biggest one yet. I think it's going to be the biggest bull market in terms of market cap appreciation uh, that we've had of any cycle because there's just so much money still outside the system that now is starting to feel comfortable coming in. It's a really big deal. Yeah. And I guess in in closing question here, you know, Bitcoin was originally intended as this. It's actually the narrative has changed over the years. You know, the title of the white paper, you know, electronic cash. And mm-hmm. now we've we've changed a little bit and we're a non-sovereign digital gold store of value. I mean, does does this the the arrival of the ETF does it change your your impact or your sort of mental framing for what Bitcoin is? Is it less cypherpunk than it used to be? Does that matter? Is that is that just part of it growing up? I think we've always been going in one direction, which is a new a new form of money, which is used as a store of value and an apolitical settlement rail. Uh, I think that was true from the day the white paper was published. The first step in that is a store of value. Before you can be a functional payment rail and really an apolitical currency, you need to establish a store of value and grow enough to be meaningful. You need to be $10 trillion. You need to be significant. So the ETF is part of that growth. You weren't going to get from zero to multiple trillions without having an ETF. So from that perspective, I think it's, you know, it's it's maybe not cypherpunk, but it's a necessary step uh, to achieve the ends that were designed in that white paper. You know, revolutions don't happen overnight in finance. They have to follow a path. Bitcoin's gone on an incredible path. Uh, and this is just one more big step on that path. But but the destination, in my mind, remains the same. Awesome. That feels like a really good place to end it. Matt, we really appreciate you joining us. This was a ton of fun. Um, our hearts are with you, uh, you know, as a bit wise and uh, knock on wood again and hope everything goes well today. <laughs> We're rooting for you. Thanks for having me, guys. This was great. Yeah, great to chat. Thanks. All right. Cheers.